0: This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit CanDoWealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence.
1: Hello, and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's Daily Politics Podcast. I'm Max Jeffrey, and I'm joined by Katie Bulls and James Forsyth. It's the Tory Spring Conference this weekend. James, what are we expecting?
0: So I think, we're, I think we'll are hear speeches from Rishi Sunak, Boris Johnson, uh, Michael Gove. And I think, you know, in some ways it is trying to set the stage for the Tories' local election campaigns out of May. I think that's what a lot of the councillors who will be there and be interested in. But it's also the kind of first gathering of the Tory tribe since both party gates and the war in Ukraine, and I think I think you can you you can see uh, already. Jacob rees morgan said something that I mean is slightly ill-advised. Basically saying, "Well, look, Partygate has all been put into perspective by by the cost of living crisis in Ukraine. These are kind of big, serious issues, so we shouldn't you know concentrate on that." And there's another kind of I'm not entirely sure how helpful this is. Uh, briefing from people close to Boris Johnson saying, "Well, you know, he can now survive even a fine over Partygate. The, the political dynamics also change." But there but there is no doubt. That politics does feel this and this spring conference does feel different than it would have done a few months ago. I think a few months ago, everyone would have thought that this would have been a kind of almost like a leadership beauty parade of contenders. I mean, it's not that anymore. But I think that the politics of the Ukraine crisis are going to become more complicated for the government because you, the, the tension is going to shift to what is the government going to do on this cost of living crisis we've got the spring statement coming up next week on Wednesday and th- th- this becomes a question you We know, ha- what does the government do to help people with this cost of living crisis which is Kate okay, Andrew says in the magazine this week you know was going to be bad before Ukraine began to affect both energy prices and food prices it, it it's going to be worse because of that and saying so how does the government steer away through and there is a covid related tension here which is in in two ways one is the public finances obviously have less slack in them in terms of what you can do because they've just come off one crisis and haven't yet been repaired from that but on the other hand The Covid crisis created an expectation among the public that, you know, when some big external event hits that, you know, people have no control over, such as, you know, Vladimir Putin designed to invade Ukraine, you know, the government steps in to help and helps, you know, very generously. You know, remember furlough paid 80% of people's wages, which meant that, you know, if anyone was a commuter, they were essentially netting out from where they were before. So I think this is going to become a, a, a slightly more difficult phase for the government with, Big demands for help. We've had a letter from 50 Tory MPs this morning, saying you know, organised by Rob Halfon, saying cut fuel duty, for example. Big demands for help, and the question is going kind to of, whether the government can respond in a way that will be seen as adequate. You know, and, um, and my first thought on seeing this this Rob Halfin letter is you know, which is not not unexpected, but you know, one of the challenges of cutting fuel duty is if you cut fuel duty at a time when pump prices are rising you tend not to get much credit because people still feel that they are paying more so the exchequer loses revenue but you get very little political bonus i, I wonder i mean now fuel prices obviously come off slightly as, as we uh, discussed on spectator tv this week max but but i still think i still think you i don't it would be a hard stretch with petrol prices you know at a historically high level for the government to get much political benefit out of cutting fuel duty
2: yeah i think it's interesting that the there's been a decision to actively brief out the idea Boris Johnson is much safer. It definitely feels that those things have drastically changed. I do think, though, from speaking to some of those closest to Boris Johnson and some of those who've been leading the fight to shore up his support, they think that they have, you know, bought him time. But ultimately, there are still a lot of people in the Tory party who want to see the back of Boris Johnson. And therefore, I don't think there is, you know a huge sense of relief. I think there is a point on parties which is particularly I think if the fine had come out you know last week and while the situation in Ukraine is as it is they don't think that would now lead to you know a massive flow of no confidence letters. But one of the things that drove ultimately such a wide level of dissatisfaction with Boris Johnson number 10 was the sense of dysfunction in 10 Downing Street and this idea that it started you know various things but I think if you think about that period of several months where it just in a way got grimmer and grimmer for Boris Johnson, that began with Owen Patterson and the mishandling and it you know kept on and then it was how Number 10 handled the party allegations. There is a new team in there now. You have Steve Barkley as Chief of Staff. You have a new Director of Communications. You have a new Number 10 Perm Secretary and you have some staff being brought in and some staff quietly going. You've got some civil servants potentially moving down the road and I, I think... Really, I think this is going to come down to do they manage to get a grip on Boris Johnson's government in the way that he's really struggled to find the right rhythm for how, how he does it? And I think, therefore, while parties, I think, particularly and you know, could still flare up, but particularly seemed, I think, trivial compared to some of the things we're seeing in Ukraine, if it is still a dysfunctional number 10, that is going to rear its head again, whether that's you know, in a few months' time or, or longer.
1: And Katie, there was a story in the Times today saying that Liz Trust has told officials to be ready to trigger Article 16 from next week, and also saying that that Boris Johnson is also behind that. What do you make of the story, and is this a is this for the right time to be doing that sort of a thing?
2: So, I think it's tricky when it comes to these Article 16 stories because uh, in recent weeks we've heard that Liz Truss definitely wasn't going to trigger Article 16. So, there was a report, I think, in the Sunday Telegraph suggesting that the Foreign Secretary has suggested to the Prime Minister that now is not the time to do so and suggested alternatives. The Times story today seems to be in conflict with that story, which is the idea she is now planning to do it. I think not to be incredibly boring in a slight situation where nothing has really changed the government's always said that it will keep article 16 as an option i think we're reaching a point where you think about the local election campaign that's going to begin that if you were going to trigger article 16 it would really need to be in the coming weeks because i think to trigger article 16 during local elections in northern ireland would look like a political move and that's partly why given the level of dissatisfaction and concern over how the protocol is currently working and um, there's so much talk of it at the moment I think when it comes to these negotiations there's definitely a level of frustration I think felt by the foreign secretary and the foreign office that they're not making much progress yes things are more civil and it hasn't really moved um, and I think that is obviously leading to a point well you know we've got to add pressure to try and get some movement I do think that in a way there's a bit of truth to all these stories in the sense that the situation in ukraine i think has put figures in government off triggering article 16 it doesn't mean they won't do it at all if if there's no progress because you've got a situation where they clearly don't want to take that route there are other ways you can try and change things it's not just article 16 and that's not an end in of itself but also there is now just such a wide acceptance that the current protocol is not working it's not just a right of the party it's other figures um, within the tory party so the situation we're currently in is not sustainable. It's just in what, which way do you break it? And in truth, I just don't think anyone's quite worried at how they're going to do that because there's so many moving parts. And the reluctance to
1: do it at the moment is because because there's fears that it would break European unity confronting Putin.
2: Yeah, and if you trigger Article 16, it's going to get pretty turbulent. Uh, you think it could um, lead to, uh, you know, Effectively, a trade war between the EU and UK, depending on how the EU retaliate. Uh, do you really need that? A at a time when everyone's trying to focus on supporting Ukraine and trying to reach peace there, but also at a time when, as you say, the UK is having to work with its European counterparts, might be attending, you know, summits for them shortly uh, and, and trying to garner goodwill. It's not going to add to a collaborative feel, I don't think.
1: And James, finally. President Biden is speaking to Xi of China today. The US government says they're of high concern that China could be prov- about to provide Russia with military aid. James, how likely is it that the Chinese will be providing Russia with military assistance? And what's Biden's message going to be?
0: So Russia and China have an existing relationship where they sell each other kit, they trade with each other. And I think what you see the US trying to do is is A, make sure that, that Russia finds it harder to replace things that, it, that that have been, stocks that have been depleted by the war in Ukraine. We've all, we've all seen the, the kind of losses they've suffered. And also it seems from the intelligence the US has published that the Russians are asking for some remarkably basic stuff from the Chinese, including kind of meals ready to eat, which is a kind of very basic ration, which again suggests the problems of the logistics on the, on the Russian side. I also think there is another American agenda here. They want to make China take a reputational Hit for whatever it does. And, and I mean, there are, there are two reasons why they want to do this. One, China, for, um, and I've suggested to, 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 to our colleagues in the U.S., we should, to, should do a Chinese whispers on this. I mean, it's a very interesting point. China is very keen to see itself as a kind of always has done historically, as the leader of the anti imperialist third world forces. And this war, you know, as we saw from the, from the Kenyan ambassador to the UN to talk about, you know, borders and respecting them and, and like, you know, it is not it is not popular among that group of countries university by any stretch of the imagination, so I mean they want them to take a hit there I mean the second is they know that there is a EU-China relationship which is currently in a difficult situation you know Um, the Germans having pushed very hard under Angela Merkel's presidency of the EU when Germany had the EU presidency uh, Angela Merkel was still the chancellor for this this EU-China investment treaty that's now stalled because the Chinese decided to sanction a bunch of members of the European parliament and I think in Washington they sense look we've got Europe to to massively rethink how it looks at Russia. Look at the way in which the Germans have cancelled Nord Stream 2, stepping up their defence budget. And I think there are people in Washington who think this is a chance to say, look, look at China. China is just as destabilising a force in world affairs as Russia is and so you know you've got to start thinking geostrategically rather than economically when it comes to that relationship remember Germany has an important trading relationship with China which has in some ways become more important if, if Germany is going to is going to cut back on its trading relationship with Russia so I think that that, that is some of the, the, the what you see the US trying to do I think it is very interesting that the Chinese are, as one Western pilot put to me, kind of hopping from foot to foot on this question at the moment. Uh, having kind of, you know, blamed the war very aggressively on NATO and its eastward expansion, you know, spread all this um, absurd Russian claims about bioweapons labs there. You see the Chinese trying to tr- slightly pull back a little bit from that position. And I thought it was very interesting that, you know, the, 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 in China, the, the social media censors were initially told, you know, you know, play up things blaming America, play down things blaming Russia. I'm told that Bill Bishop, who's a a China expert based in America, says that that the Chinese censors are now being told to basically just downplay everything about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the war in Ukraine. Regardless of kind of pushing up like pro-Russia stuff and anti-US stuff, let's just kind of damp it down. And I think that is because they are nervous about the reputational hit they would take of a kind of full-on embrace of Russia and being seen to be resupplying Russia in a similar way to the way that NATO is resupplying Ukraine.
1: And how do you think that's going to change over the next few weeks, perhaps, and for the duration of this conflict? Are we going to see China perhaps moving over to the western side of things? The, the, the Chinese ambassador to Washington I think, told the Washington Post that um, had China known about the imminent crisis, we would have tried our best to prevent it.
0: I think mean, that is a stretch in that I still think it is worth remembering that Vladimir Putin did not invade Ukraine until after... The Winter Olympics had finished in 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 Beijing, and and you know, and so I think I think I would, I would be skeptical of the idea that the Chinese had no idea that this was about about to happen. I think though that this operation is clearly not going as Russia intended, and I mean there is an interesting question about whether China wants to try and kind of take the prestige of looking like it is trying to broker a peace deal. I think the problem for anyone trying to broker a peace deal is it is quite hard to see what terms. Vladimir Putin would be prepared to accept, but the Ukrainians would be prepared to accept, especially given the way in which the military conflict has played out so far.
1: Thank you, James. Thank you, Katie. And thank you for listening. And as our p- mandatory plug for the Coffeehouse Shots Live spring statement recording that we're doing... Buy tickets, we'll stop plugging so that, That's <laughs> going to Sell out. You're making well, then... <laughs> it sound
2: a little bit desperate. But I would love to see everyone who's listening to this at the event, and um, that would be lovely exactly
1: the tickets are available at spectator.co.uk forward slash spring it's at the Emanuel Centre in Westminster and you can hear from Katie and James as well as Kate Andrews and Fraser Nelson it's at seven thirty next Wednesday thank you for listening